I want to share a message with you today on prayer. You may have noticed in the bulletin that we haven't prayed yet today. So I want to do that before we start. Father, we've come here to worship you today. To find peace in our heart from the day's activity and to be still before you and to know you. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Camp Blowing Rock today, who are gathered to worship up there. We certainly miss them, and we pray that you will give them uh, traveling journeys off of the hill later today. Pray that you be with Pastor Matt. Uh, We're thankful for him. Uh, I'm thankful for him, not only as pastor of the church here, but also as a neighbor. And just pray your blessings on, on Matt and Meredith and their family. Lord, we come praying for the needs of this congregation, for those who are struggling uh, with their work, for those who have health issues, uh, for those uh, that are uh, lonely uh, within. We pray that uh, they might have fellowship here with the saints in, in a renewed way. And we pray for their upcoming revival that's going to take place, that, Father, that you will move Uh, the people here in this place. We pray for neighbors and friends and relatives, those who are around us, the people that we work with. For, Father, we know that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not very far away, and uh, we want to always keep an eye on the eastern sky, but at the same time, we want to labor for you. So, Father, we pray that you'll take all the pressures uh, away from us today and help us to relax and enjoy you and your presence and to uh, enjoy each other. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, and amen. I mentioned I wanted to speak on prayer because uh, Thursday I was told there was very little gas in the van, and I needed to get gas, and I put it off and put it off, and finally at 4.30 I said, okay, I'm going to run down to the Hess station. You've been there many times. You know where it's at. And uh, got down to the light, and there was a vehicle that, could have taken a left, at least I thought so. I thought I could make it too. Uh, but they stopped, and I had to stop. And I'm sitting there in the left-hand lane, and all of a sudden I noticed that all these bumper stickers over the windows in the back of the vehicle. It was an SUV. And uh, the one bumper sticker that got my attention was uh, the work of one man is more than the prayer of a million. Now that caught my attention. I thought I'd read it wrong. I read it a second time, a third time. The work of one man is more than the work of of a million who pray. Now, that just doesn't seem right to me. And I thought how foolish that was. So today I want to speak on prayer. And I know I have here in the past, and I'm... Uh, probably the world's worst at record-keeping, but I want to speak with you out of uh, the Gospel of Luke, and you can turn there, chapter 18. But I want to say to you that prayer is... um, More people believe in prayer than believe in the church, and more people believe in prayer than believe in the Bible. And the one I don't get is the one where it says more people believe in prayer than believe in God, because I don't know who they're praying to. So that alarms me uh, right off the bat. Uh, This is the greatest discipline or one of the greatest disciplines of the church. George Barner did a survey and he said that 
Five of the core um, practices of the church have advanced over the last decade, except for two. Uh, One is evangelism, and the other one, of course, is prayer. David Jeremiah says the importance of prayer cannot be overemphasized. Prayer is the energy that enables the warrior to wear the armor and wield the sword. But over the last six months, I've been out to six different conferences, and I want to tell you that the Church of Jesus Christ is beginning to march, and it's beginning to march on its knees. One church has accepted over 30 new members. One conference accepted two churches. I could tell you a lot of stories about conversions. You see, prayer not only changes things, it changes people, and probably more importantly, it changes the prayer. I have a little sign on my wall uh, by Max Licato. It says, when we work, we work, and when we pray, God works. I don't know about you, but I want God to work. So you see, when we depend on man, we get what man can offer, and we know what that is. But when we pray, we get what God offers us. Now, in Luke, the 18th chapter, and I'm sure you're already there by now, there's a very unique parable. Starting at verse 1, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, let's stop there for just a second. I want to say to you that this parable is unique in all of Scripture. And what makes it unique is that Jesus Christ describes what's going to occur in the parable before he gives the parable. Now, there were parables that Jesus offered. And once he completed it, the disciples got to him and said, we didn't quite understand that. Can you explain that parable to us? Can you give us some details? Can you make, it, make some sense out of that for us? Because we just didn't get it. Well, this is the only parable in which Jesus says, I want you to understand this parable. It's about prayer. That you are always to pray before you give up. And then he tells them the parable. So let's read on. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God or cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, in the Gospel of of Luke, there's a lot about prayer. You can go back to chapter 11, and uh, the disciples come to Jesus, and they have a question. Now, I don't know if you had a private meeting with Jesus, what question you would raise with him. The pastor may raise the question, how can I be a better pastor, a better speaker? Uh, If you talk to the treasurer, it may be, how can we raise more funds for the church? Um, Just depends on where you're at in life. It may be somebody in the choir 
wants to know how they can sing better. Well, the disciples raised one question, and the question was, teach us how to pray. They saw Jesus model prayer. It was something they wanted to know more about, and so they raised the question. Jesus, in the closing here of Luke, tells three parables. Two of them are about prayer. So we see the importance of prayer in the closing words of Luke. The very next chapter, in in, uh, chapter 19, uh, Jesus is quoting Isaiah uh, chapter 56, and he says, My house shall be a house of prayer, not of music, not of preaching, not of whatever you want to say. There's a church in our denomination who is, who, that's known across the town for having the best daycare in the whole city. Number one daycare. It's not known for its praying. It's not known for its singing, its preaching. <laughs> it's fine facilities. It's known for its child care. My house shall be a house of prayer. There's a, an old story about this uh, church that set a, they bought a huge stone. They had it set. They're going to build a brand new sanctuary. And just as the minister was leaving, the old parson, the engraver drove up or rode up on his horse and said, what do you want engraved on the stone for the dedication next Sunday? He said, well, I don't have time to write it down, but if you'd like to look in the Bible, it's Luke 19, verse 46. So he went in and looked up chapter 19, verse 46. When the parson came back, he couldn't believe what was on the stone. He engraved the whole verse. It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it into a den of thieves. (laughs) Engraved in the stone... For the dedication Sunday. Now, I don't know what they did. They probably lifted it and turned it some way, tried to hide that. All they wanted was the first part, the easy part. My house should be a house of prayer. They didn't want any of that thief stuff. Well, in this story, this parable, we find out that Jesus is talking about prayer and how it changes things. Now, I don't have the time to talk about how prayer protects us or blesses us or directs us or heals us or even brings salvation to us. But we know that prayer changes everything. Now, the first thing I want us to look at is, is what is called uh, the people. There are two people here. And I don't think you'll find any two people in any town across the United States of the world who are at more opposite ends of the social spectrum than this judge and this woman. Now, this judge just wasn't a judge. He was an unjust judge, and this woman just wasn't a widow. She was a just widow. He was not just. He was unjust. And she was a widow who was seeking justice. He had no fear, the Scripture says, of God or man, and yet she respected man and honored God. He looked to himself. He was a self-centered man. She was a God-fearing woman. And he looked to himself. She looked to God. Stop for a second. Times of need, when you need help, who do you look to? The great classical story in Scripture is of Pharaoh, how he kept the children of Israel in bondage. 
You know the story well. There came a day in Exodus 12 where Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron in and said, I don't want to ever see you in my sight again. And what he's saying, I've had it up to my ears. I want you to leave. I don't want you to ever come back. And if you come back, I'll kill you. Very simple, direct message. And then that night, the tenth and final plague came. All of Egypt lost their firstborn, including Pharaoh. In chapter 12, verse 46, it says, During the night, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron. <laughs> In the afternoon, he said, I don't want to ever see you again. I'll kill you. And at night, <laughs> he's saying, I want you to come back. And he says to Moses and Aaron, you and the Israelites, go out and worship the Lord your God. What changes things? Well, the Egyptians uh, had been making slaves of God's people. They were making bricks even without straw. And what was occurring was that the children of Israel prayed. If you read those texts, just don't read all the plagues. Read about how they cried out to the Lord. God heard them. God made a way of provision for them. Now, you don't see yourself as being oppressed, or the oppressor, I should say, but you feel that you are oppressed. And my hunch is that some of us have felt it at home. Uh, God forbid, but maybe even the church, but more likely at work. Uh, Somebody cut you off when you were driving this week and sort of wave at you? Our kids probably have felt that pressure at school. Where are they standing in all the pecking order? I want to ask you this question. Who is your oppressor? And before you answer that question, I want to tell you that your oppressor is not flesh and blood. Your oppressor is the the evil one who falsely accuses the saints. Now, he may use somebody's lips or somebody's deeds to get that done. But be of good cheer, for God is our defender, he's our protector, and yes, he's our judge. Secondly, I want us to see in this text that there's two pleas involved. Or that that there's one plea, but there's... My second point is, look at the pleas involved. The plea is... a claim. Uh, some courts, even today, they have a section that's called a claim. And uh, this widow is simply claiming, give me justice against my adversary. Now, that, that's what we want, right? It's not revenge. Uh, it's justice. Now, she's catching this judge as he's going into a narrow gate because she doesn't have a voice. She's a widow. And she's saying, give me justice against my adversary. And at nighttime when he goes home outside of the city, give me justice against my That's the claim. In many courts, at, or in some courts, um, state of Texas is one. At the end of your claim, it's called a prayer. It's what you want the court to do. And uh, whether states call it a prayer or not, it, it's, it, there's a section where they want to know, what are you asking the court to do? What, what do you want us to consider in, in light that you think you have been violated? 
Well, she offers this claim, but it's not like a lot of people who pray, and they pray one time, well, Lord, you know, this situation, and here it is. But it says that she does this continually. She's there morning and night, morning and night, week after week, month after month. Give me justice against my adversary. And it's important that we notice that it's continuous. Because, one, it tells God that we mean business about our prayer. But it also tells God that as we pray, we're going to gain some boldness as we pray. When we pray, if we're praying in God's will, God's Spirit's going to say, yes, that's God's will. Pray. Pray. And we are going to know that this is God's will and this is going to happen and God's going to do this because we are one with Him. Or secondly, what might occur is that we'll find out that our prayer is amiss, that we're not praying what is in the very center of God's will. And God's going to simply gently lead us over to His will. If we pray continually, we're going to discover His will, and then there's going to be a boldness. Now, it's a claim that is continuous, but it's more than that. Notice that it's consuming. This claim consumes her. Give me justice against my adversary. This is God's will. This has to happen. Notice what he says. (laughs) This widow keeps bothering me, and I'll see that she gets justice. And she does. This passage uh, took on a little meaning, more meaning for me when we had a lady in our church or her family was in our church. Uh, She was a missionary in Finland, and she went behind the Iron Curtain in the 80s, and she would take Bibles and CDs or I don't know if they had DVDs then. You'll have to correct me here. Uh, But cassette tapes maybe was the thing. But she kept going about four times a year. And this one time she came to the guardhouse to get her passport stamped. And they interrogated her. They searched all of her things. They even searched her and her friend. And at the end of the day, they said, you can't enter in. And so they had to scramble back to town and find a hotel. And they got on their knees and said, Lord, you know, what's going on? (laughs) It's never happened before. So after they prayed, they opened the Bible you want to know what passage they fell to? Luke 18. And they said, Lord, you really don't want us to go back to that guardhouse. They, they were terrible today. And they wouldn't let us in. Next morning, they grabbed all their belongings and went back to the same guardhouse. And they said, why are you here? We told you yesterday you couldn't go in. Well, here's our passport. We'd like to enter. And after some interrogation, they finally asked them to leave the building, not just to go to the waiting room, but go outside. And when as soon as they stepped outside, there was some laughter. Because what was happening in the guardhouse, in the interrogation room, is that they were listening to some of the music. The only problem was somebody had flipped a switch, probably inadvertently, for the PA system, for the speakers of the guardhouse. It was to keep out all of this Christianity. And it was playing gospel music. (laughs) And they looked across the way and people were leaning out of their apartment buildings. Had the windows up. Because the, the building that was supposed to keep Christianity out was blaring the message of salvation. So there was a lot of joy. 
So finally they were called back in. The papers were stamped and they were on their way. They weren't afraid of the unjust judge because they had prayed that night and that morning and they believed it was God's will for them to go behind the Iron Curtain and they did. There's one more point to this message. It has to do with the principle involved. This is where we come in. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? If your plea is right and you are persistent in your prayer, God will answer your prayer. Now, there's many levels of praying. Some people can't get beyond the asking. Some people can't get beyond the talking, having a dialogue with God. But there's such a thing as intercessory prayer. Some people now have called it desperate praying. God, if you don't do this, your people are going to be lost. And they pour themselves out before the Lord. Ian Bound, a good southerner, wrote many years ago, Our prayers, however, need to be pressed and pursued with an energy that never tires, a persistence which will not be denied, and a courage which will never fail. Richard Trent puts it this way, prayer is not conquering God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness. And we know it's God's will that men should come to know His Son, Jesus Christ. That's a prayer we can pray as we think about revival that's coming. So how are we praying? What are we praying for our family? For our church? For our neighbor? This is job one of the church. It's our top priority. It's an everyday activity to pray and to care and to share. It's been put this way by Francis J. Roberts. True prayer is born in brokenness. Brokenness. When we yield ourselves and break ourselves before the Lord and the Lord comes into our lives, it's when God can operate. I want to take you back many years ago. Some of you can't relate to this story, I know. One of the first jobs I had at home on the telephone was to call the operator. Mom would say, Dick, find out what time it is. Now, I know that sounds strange for all of you who are probably younger than 50. But I would call the operator and ask for time. That's how we used to get time, right? Some of you have done that years ago. I know it sounds strange for all of you, you know, forgot the watch. You know, you got, you got your phone now. You, you look at your phone and you know, oh, boy, it's 1137. We're going to get out of here early today. <laughs> well, there was this community where this man used to call for time. And he did it every day and went on for months, eventually years. And all the operators decided that they were going to break some company policy and find out who he was and why he had to have time. So that morning he called in and asked for time. And it was a young operator. And she said, we've been talking about you. And we'd like to know who you are and why you require time every day. He says, well, I'm George McVeigh. And uh, I work down at the mill and I've got a real important job. My job is to blow the noon whistle every 
day exactly at noon. Well, she started to laugh. He didn't know what was funny because he blew the whistle exactly at noon and it was when people took their lunch hours. It's when the train left town. People took their pocket watches, the old pocket watch, set their time. They set their clocks by the noon whistle. Everything was centered off of the whistle exactly at noon. And for several minutes, she laughed hysterical. Finally, she got her composer, composure, and she said, we set our clock. Yeah, you're right. We set our clock by the noon whistle. Well, who, who knows what time it is in that little hamlet? <laughs> There's no way to know the time. You know, if you want correct, precise time, you call the Naval Observatory Tower in Denver, and they calculate from God's stars precise time. About six or seven years ago, they decided that we were out of step with God's universe. We had to stop all the clocks in the world at the end of the year, and we had to add one second to everybody's timepiece. It's amazing to me that when it comes to prayer, we feel like that, well, I'm praying as much as anybody else. The problem is if everybody's praying very little, prayer isn't getting done. And, and you, you understand the folly of, of not being in step with God, uh, not offering our prayers and praying for those who are lost and desperate and those in need, and to pray until we pray through the situation. It's important that we pray. Now, we all recognize that, but it's a matter of setting aside time to pray. So I want to encourage you to pray. Warren Wisby puts it this way. There are no big preachers or small churches. But there's a great and mighty God who is searching for people to trust Him, to do the impossible in places where only the impossible will work. Sometimes we depend on ourselves too much. We depend on others in the church, in the community for so much. But when it comes to salvation, it's all about God. And we have to depend on Him. And so this parable simply says that we are always to pray and not give up. Always pray. Always praying. Always. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the times that we don't pray, that we don't pray in your will, and we don't pray till we see it through. We know the things that you want to do, and yet we're pressed by life, we're squeezed by its mold, and we simply don't take the time to pray. I pray that we won't gauge our prayer life by others around us, but we will pray in accordance to your will. 
and they will, will pray just as long as you want us to pray, whether it's 15 minutes or half an hour, an hour. Father, that we'll pray it through, that we'll see victory in Jesus' name. So, Father, keep us as a praying people. Help us to pray throughout the days. We think of needs as you call upon us to pray. And the Lord, that uh, there will be victories here in this place. Make us a praying people. Keep us a praying people. We pray that your name will be glorified in all things. For we pray it in his name. And amen.